Welcome to Ask the Educator, a podcast brought to you by Healthmark Industries. Are you a sterile processing technician or manager? Maybe you work in infection prevention or biomedical engineering. Whether you're a frontline tech, endoscopy tech, OR nurse, or surgical services administrator, you undoubtedly have influence in medical device processing at your facility. In each episode, we speak with experts from the Healthmark Clinical Affairs team, industry leaders, or special guests from the trenches to answer your questions and bring you relevant industry information, equipping you for excellence in medical device processing. My name is Kevin Anderson, and I will be your host. Now let's get started. All right. Welcome back to the Ask the Educator podcast. My name is Adam Okada here with my co-host, Kevin Anderson. And today we're going to be continuing our discussion on ST91 with Marianne Drosnock. Marianne, welcome in. Thank you very much, Adam, for that introduction. And if you are just tuning into this episode, you may want to go back and listen to the first episode we did with Marianne. It's a really great introduction to what is ST91, what is the scope of that document, the history of the document, and then a lot of information as far as what the wording is and recommendations uh, are intended for. So a really good episode that Marianne did on the first one, but we're back again to get into a little bit more of the meat and potatoes here of ST91. And the first question I want to ask you, Marianne, is going to be one of the uh, biggest things that was changed about this new version and the idea of these quote-unquote high-risk endoscopes. And what what can you tell us about high-risk endoscopes as far as what they are and what the intention of them is in the document? Right. That's a great question, Adam, and one that comes up a lot in uh, personal questions that come into me regarding ST91 because it is a new concept as it relates to this document itself. So we had never in the previous version of ST91 had a classification for a different type of endoscope based on risk, but we felt it important in this one to to have that designation because we are asking facilities to take different steps related to those high-risk scopes. So let's talk about what what a high-risk endoscope is or what makes them designated that way. So you have any type of endoscope that was or is more frequently associated with outbreaks of infection or cross-contamination based on the the reports that, that came in or the citations for infections and cross-contamination, and also those that generally have a higher risk associated with them. And they are often of more complex design than other simpler types of endoscopes. So again, those that are more more commonly associated with outbreaks, those that are difficult to reprocess and therefore have that higher risk associated with them, or they're just more complex and therefore something could more easily go wrong in that processing. So those are the really the three buckets that I like to think of high-risk scopes being put into. Now, within ST91, we do tell you what are always considered to be high-risk scopes. And then we also say, and any that those your facility thinks should be high-risk. So let's start with those that are always high-risk. So you have your duodenoscopes or duodenoscopes, depending on how you like to say it. I'm in the camp of duodenoscope because that's what (laughs) I like to say. And uh, those are your ERCP scopes. Um, And then you have the linear ultrasound scopes, also known as EUS scopes. They have that ultrasound transducer at the distal tip. Bronchoscopes are considered to be high risk. 
your endobronchial ultrasound scopes, also known as EBUS endoscopes, those are high risk, and always your reuteroscopes and cystoscopes. So those are the types of endoscopes that are always considered high risk and should be by all facilities. And you've heard about them, right? The duodenoscopes with the infection outbreaks that happened. EUS having been more complicated along with the uh, EBUS. They both have those ultrasonic transducers. Bronchoscopes going into the sensitive area of the lungs, more likely to have an infection risk there. Same thing with ureteroscopes going up through the ureters into the kidneys can easily transmit any organisms that might be left over or cause damage to the patient if the scopes were damaged themselves. Same thing with cystoscopes. So always high risk for those. But like I said, then we also added there and any uh, other ones as determined by the facility. So we wanted to give facilities the ability, if they have specific types of patients, it might be, as just an example, it might be those that are undergoing transplants, organ transplants, where they're in a very precarious position as far as their health and immunocompromised status goes. Or it might be that you're doing a certain procedure that maybe other facilities aren't doing where you would want to classify that scope differently. So you do have that ability to add anything, any other types of scopes on as high risk within your facility. And then I'll be honest with you, there are some facilities that just consider everything to be high risk. So they're all treated with the utmost care and to the same standard for patients, the same standard of care for all patients. And listen, that's fine to do. I would love if if everybody thought that way, but that's not realistic in a lot of facilities. So always that group that I said and any others that your facility might think are high risk. And then we want you to do something different with those. So we started out with just the uh, changing the requirements and recommendations for cleaning verification testing based on the designation of whether it's high risk or not. And I won't get into too much detail with it because I think it's going to be covered in another episode on ST91. But in general, the new standard says that every high-risk endoscope shall, so remember we talked about wording in the previous episode, shall is a requirement of the standard. So if it says a shall, then and you're saying you comply with that standard, then that's something your facility has to do. So we say every high-risk endoscope shall have a cleaning verification test on it every time it's processed. So that's every high-risk scope every time. And by cleaning verification, I mean things like tests for protein, tests for hemoglobin, combination test strips, protein carbohydrate and hemoglobin together, um, or ATP. They all qualify as cleaning verification. And we never tell you within a standard what, like a product that you have to use. Um, We'll just tell you that you have to do something and you need to figure out how to do that. So every high-risk scope, every time, for cleaning verification. And then for those that are non-high-risk endoscopes, examples might be your gastroscopes and colonoscopes, you would do a statistically significant portion of your number of procedures. So it's going to be based on your procedure volume to figure out what a statistically significant frequency of those would be. And then we do have an annex within ST91 that walks you through how to figure out what that statistically significant portion of procedures may be. So if you're a high volume facility, it might be that you're testing every scope once a day. Um, But if you're a low volume, you might still have to do every scope every time. Uh, So refer to that annex in the back of ST91 to help you figure out what that would be. 
But I will tell you by uh, making that change and that designation and distinction between high-risk and non-high-risk scopes, we do see a lot of facilities that are moving to testing every scope every time, regardless of whether it's high-risk or not high-risk designation, because you're taking that interpretation out of the picture. You're not asking technicians to uh, memorize a list of what's high risk and what's not, or refer to a list of what they are. Just test every scope every time because you know you have, want to have the same standard of care. And I get that, and that's fine. That's more conservative approach than what we're requiring in the standard, but we do have that designation. All high risk scopes every time and non-high risk that statistically significant portion. So I hope that answers your question in a long-winded fashion. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. Actually, I I like that you brought up part about, you know, the facility kind of having some flexibility in determining what else could be considered a high-risk endoscope in their facility. I can't help but remember one physician at one of our health system locations back when I was working in the hospital was using a, a common flexible endoscope for different kinds of procedures that no one else was really doing. And there was a high incidence of damage to the scope based on a newer kind of different procedure that he was doing that no one else was doing with the scope. So not only was there damage, but I I presume with that damage, there was potentially more challenges to the processing side of things and all of that. But all of that to say that not every facility is the same. There are sometimes variations in what these scopes can do, but also what these doctors can do with these types of devices. And so there's some room there for you know discernment and figuring out um, you know what applies in your situation. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think that those types of decisions are probably not made in a vacuum. I'd, uh, I'd guess that, you know, you might have infection prevention on board with that. You might even have whoever the director of your medical group from from endoscopy, whoever's in that chair position would probably be involved in that as well. But those are some important uh, distinctions with this document. And speaking about high risk endoscopes and all of the things that have evolved with flexible endoscopes over time and kind of just is a natural way to pivot, but there's been this manual disinfection thing that we see in certain facilities. Not everyone does this. There are a lot of facilities that have AERs and they only use AERs and things like that, but uh, manual disinfection is very much still in play in certain facilities. What does the new ST91 have to say about that? It has a lot to say about that. <laughs> That's a great point, Kevin. And I remember when we made this decision as a working group, just again, to give you some background, I stopped and thought, wow, we we really just did this? Do, do we even know what the impact of this is going to have? But let's start with, with what the new document says. So with this new release of, I can't talk anymore, ST91, we really um, made the distinction that we no longer recommend manual disinfection. So what does that mean? That means that the soaker bins that you have where you have high-level disinfectant in them, it might be a glutaraldehyde or an OPA or a, a peroxide-based chemical, we no longer recommend on a routine basis that you use those to high-level disinfect endoscopes. So um, that's a that's a big thing in your off-site locations, physicians' offices, ambulatory sites, more rural 
less volume type facilities where they're still doing this manual soaking to achieve high level disinfection, this could have a great impact. So we do still recommend that you have the ability to do that more on an emergency basis, but on a routine basis, you should be using an automated endoscope reprocessor, an AER, to achieve high-level disinfection. And that's because there is so much data out there now that supports that an automated system, an AER, can do a much better job than we could ever do manually. There's that the variability is taken out of it. The inconsistency is taken out of it because we're only humans, right? And we've done all these steps of cleaning before that. And now you have to manually connect all these different hookups and submerge it and make sure everything is under the level of the fluid of disinfectant making sure we fill all the channels and let it soak for the right amount of time and achieve the right temperature. There's so much going on that can go wrong in manual disinfection. And we have that data to support doing away with that process. Uh, So that's what we did. And I, I, like I said, I remember taking that, that just minute to breathe and say, what did we just do? Cause that's a big change. Um, And like Kevin alluded to, all facilities are different, but there still are a lot of facilities that if they have the choice, even sometimes if they have an AER, they say it's faster to do it manually, but I will tell you it's not the same. And you are going to get way more volume of fluid at a higher velocity flushed through those channels. You have controls that make sure it's the right temperature and pressure, as I said, and the right contact times and the right rinsing and all of that, we cannot do the same quality of job every time in all circumstances that a machine can do to do this process. So again, we no longer recommend manual at all unless it's an emergency case situation. Look what just happened with the hurricane, right? A lot of facilities were out of power. Well, what if your backup generators go out too? You have to have the ability to still do emergency type procedures. So doesn't mean you can get rid of it altogether, but we do want to see the industry migrate to using AERs. And there are many types available on the market from small tabletop ones that might be more appropriate in your smaller, lower volume facilities and, and, you know, really big ones that do two or more at a time that may be appropriate elsewhere, but big change there. As a kind of follow up to that, I just want to point out the the importance of what you said in terms of data that we have now supporting this change. I think that's really important because so many times, like I said, when this information reaches the front line, you're just kind of left like scratching your head, like what what's the reason for all of these changes? And that's the information that needs to get to people so that they do understand the why behind the change. It's such a big deal. I know for myself, I I used to kind of look like somebody who was a nonconformist and a little bit of a, maybe a jerk at times, because if I didn't understand why I was doing something, I was not going to just do it without a little bit of a pushback. So I think that's really important. And then regarding against manual disinfection, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what about for those facilities, you mentioned there's different tabletops, different types of versions of AERs that maybe might be better for them. So there are options for everybody out there. What kind of game plan could they have maybe to get away from this if if it is a prevalent practice in their facility? Just trying to offer a little more help for those people doing manual. Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. 
And like I said, different types available for different settings. So looking into what works best in your facility. The other option that we see a lot of is migration to central processing and moving those scopes from the off-site locations that maybe still are affiliated with the healthcare system to sterile processing to do that. And then you've got to think about things like logistics and turnaround time and making sure you have adequate supply to send them to either to central sterile within the hospital or to some offsite location where they'll, they'll be doing the reprocessing. But that's one way. And of course, my favorite topic, uh, moving to sterilization might be another option if they do have that availability within their uh, setting to, depending on the type of scope, of course, and its compatibility. But you now we want to, we don't want to migrate to sterilization anyway. So this might be part of that opportunity. I can't, if I can't manually disinfect it, can I sterilize it? And that's a great segue into our next question, which is on the sterilization of some of these scopes. What are the action steps that people can take to start moving their scopes towards sterilization? We've been hearing the industry say for a while, this is the way we want to go. We currently don't really have the capability on the manufacturer side to do that yet. But what are the first steps that we can start taking now to get to a place where we're starting to move towards sterilization? Yeah, Adam, I have a whole presentation on that topic itself, but I'm going to try to streamline that to a minute or two here uh, because I'm very passionate about getting the industry to move to sterilization. As a working group, we felt all scopes should move to sterilization, but we understand that we can't do that today. Uh, But how can we get the industry to move towards sterilization over the next couple years? And we did that by reaffirming what the original Spalding classification said And that's that semi-critical devices, which are flexible endoscopes, at minimum should be cleaned and sterilized, okay? Not high-level disinfected, sterilized, which is what that originally said. But then if that is not possible, meaning not feasible, not that we don't want to or we don't want to send it to central sterile because then it's taken out of our hands and put in the hands of another department. But if it's not physically possible, then we resort to high-level disinfection. And we've come to just accept high-level disinfection as the standard of care over the years. But we really do want to try to move that to transitioning to sterilization. So as Kevin said earlier, you know, this might be one of those options. And when we think about, you know, what do we do to not have to do manual disinfection? So what I recommend first is that we have an inventory of our scopes. So you're already supposed to have an inventory of all the scope models that you have and their serial numbers. Now you're going to want to take that list and then further designate which of those are high risk, as we talked about just a couple minutes ago, so that you know that those are under that designation and then we have to do different things with them as far as cleaning verification goes. But in addition to that, then that gives you the opportunity with that inventory list that you have to look at them and see which are already compatible with sterilization. When I started in this industry back in 2009, there were many surgical flexible scopes that were already compatible with sterilization at that point, although not widely used. So your first step is to identify which of those are already compatible. I will tell you those are mainly your bronchoscopes, your reteroscopes cystoscopes, some ENT scopes, the surgical flexible scopes. That's your low-hanging fruit to transition to sterilization. We heard a couple years ago from the FDA and then IFU changes that ureteroscopes should be sterilized, removing mention of high-level disinfection, so make sure those are being sterilized in your facility. 
then move on to your cystoscopes. The one that I am passionate about is bronchoscopes. And when I do audits of facilities, it's one of the first things I look at and ask, what are you doing with your bronchoscopes? They're already and have been for many years compatible with low temperature sterilization systems. So why aren't we sterilizing them? You get a wrapped storable item that can lay flat in that wrap for your healthcare facility policies. And it's just a higher margin of safety associated with sterilization versus high-level disinfection. So I implore you to look at your, your inventory, get those low-hanging fruit out. Those are also high-risk. All of those were high-risk scopes that I just talked about. But then we're left with our duodenoscopes. And that is a challenge still to sterilize those. But really think about keeping your eye on new um, new types of sterilizers that have come onto the market that do have those, those clearance for that. We also have ethylene oxide, which has always been compatible in the endoscope manufacturers, IFUs, although not widely used anymore. And then hopefully we'll see new endoscopes uh, that come out that have a better compatibility for sterilization uh, modalities, as well as those sterilizers or new types even that have the clearances for sterilizing those duodenoscopes because we do need to do something more with them. The FDA recommends you do more with your duodenoscopes, like sterilize them or liquid chemically sterilize them and culture them and transition to newer types that have either disposable parts or are designed to more efficiently reprocess those. But we see a lot of facilities still using the older types of duodenoscopes, so we do need to do more with them, but really prioritize what's already sterilizable. Get that to Central Sterile to do the sterilization. But again, keep in mind your logistics and workflow. Do you have enough scopes to account for that longer turnaround time with them being sterilized and going back and forth between departments? How are your procedures scheduled? There's a lot to think about when you're moving to sterilization. So increments is what I recommend. Low-hanging fruit, what's already sterilizable, and start there. Thank you, Marianne. Great advice, as always. I think that's a good place to end for this episode. Just want to remind everybody that if you have ST91 or if you've heard about it and haven't gotten your copy, I recommend you do so. It's a great document. There's a lot of evidence to support changes within the document. And continue listening to this podcast series. We're going to try and help you along the way to get some ideas on how you can incorporate ST91 into your policy and procedures and all of that good stuff and just give you general information about it. And we have great people like Marianne and John Whalen to help us along the way. Very good with flexible endoscopes. So thank you, Marianne. And thank you, Adam. Till next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. All opinions expressed on this show are those of the presenters. Before using any medical device, it is important to review the device manufacturer's instructions for use.